Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. He was always about the particular. This particular shape, this particular form, this particular color, everything is completely unique and particular. In this episode, I speak with art historian Yves Lambois about the artist Ellsworth Kelly. The great American painter Ellsworth Kelly died on December 27, 2015. I first met Ellsworth in 1989 when, as director of Dartmouth's Hood Museum of Art, we hosted a retrospective exhibition of his prints. He was instantly charming, friendly, and giving of his time. Two years later, when I became director of the Harvard University Art Museums, I called Ellsworth with questions about how we might best conserve an outdoor sculpture of his that had been damaged from years of exposure to New England's harsh winters. The work was a red and blue sculpture that he'd exhibited on the U.S. Pavilion for the 1964 World's Fair in New York City. He responded to my question by saying that he'd rarely done multicolored sculpture, and he'd never really been very happy with the Harvard one, and if we were going to work on it anyway, why didn't we have it painted white? Then in 1993, Ellsworth gave the Harvard Museums a vertical sculpture made in 1974 of weathering steel entitled Curve 10. He gave it in honor of the great collector and Harvard benefactor, Joseph Pulitzer Jr. When Ellsworth saw the sculpture installed in the museum, it had rust marks on its surface, which I took to be natural to weathered steel. It wasn't, not to Ellsworth. As he hadn't yet actually given it to us, he took it back and reworked it to look brand new with a glass bead-blasted surface like the sculptures he was making in the 1990s. Eleven years later, as director of the Art Institute of Chicago, I commissioned Ellsworth to make a large white fan sculpture for a wall of the garden in the Renzo Piano-designed Modern Wing. I imagined that it would have a mapped surface, like all of Ellsworth's sculptures I'd known, but when it came off the truck, it had a glossy surface, and it beautifully reflected the dappled colors of the garden's plantings. When I asked him about it, he said simply, Well, I'm not interested in matte surfaces anymore. Three sculptures, three experiences with Ellsworth, each one an instance of his renewing, or in one case his wanting to renew, his past sculptural practice in the manner in which he was then now working. Ellsworth had a restless and curious mind up until the day he died at age 92. When I called him some months before, I asked how he was, and he said he'd been in the studio working. I said, thinking it was funny, what color were you working on? And he said he hadn't yet gotten to the color. He'd been putting ground on his canvases. That was Ellsworth, a celebrated artist in every medium, with new commissions for sculpture on three continents and five exhibitions in New York alone to mark his 90th birthday, still putting ground on his canvases himself, because that was central to his painting practice. As in his sculptures, his paintings were as much about their quality of surface as they were about their shape, size, and color. For Ellsworth, every new work was a new adventure, a new way of working, a new way of making things of extraordinary visual delight. Ellsworth lived to see published the first volume of his catalogue resume, the authoritative account of his career, to be published in six volumes by Cahiers d'Ar, the famous publisher of Picasso's catalogue resume, and written by the eminent modernist art historian Yves Lambois, professor of art history in the School of Historical Studies at the Institute of Advanced Study at Princeton. I've known Yves Lain as a friend and colleague for many years, and I recently called him to talk about Ellsworth and the catalogue resume, and I started by asking, just how involved was Ellsworth in the preparation of the catalogue? Because he was he was in, interested in his legacy, and he was an extraordinary artist. So 
when working on the chronology, which sometimes was a little fuzzy in his mind, he would nevertheless recall a particular detail that would bring a particular sketch. And from that particular sketch, there would be another particular sketch. And then you know, he would always go this way. It would be kind of like a strange uh, labyrinth in which, in the end, you would, you would reconstruct the whole thing. Sometimes, of course, we disagreed on certain things, uh, but not much. I mean, it was just a matter of little details, you know, like he would be absolutely sure that he had done that thing in November 51, and it would demonstrate it would not be possible. And so, okay, okay, I, you know, okay, okay. <laughs> I would find documents that contradicted his, his um, memory, but it didn't happen very, very often. So it was just a matter of checking things and, and or double-checking things. And he was, of course, very uh, interested in the way I would uh, dig more about all these all these uh, years in France. I must admit that when when I started the catalogue raisonné, um, I'd already worked quite a lot on those French years. For first, with this text I wrote, which was the beginning of my my investment in in, in Kelly, uh, in uh, for the for the exhibition about his French years at the Jeu de Paume in, the in Paris and National Gallery in uh, in Washington, and then later on at the at the Sacre, uh, when you were there for that show, we mounted together on Scali's drawings and collages from this period. I worked quite a lot on the French years of Kelly, and so. I thought, you know, well, it's okay, this is a little piece of cake, I'm going to do that in two minutes. Well, not at all, because i working more and discovering more of his archive and more uh, things that I didn't know. I realized how much I didn't know and how rewarding it would be to dig and dig and dig further. And so the the whole structure of the catalogues actually changed. I thought of writing, uh, you know, normal, fairly short entries for each work, and uh, and then a very long monographic introduction, so to speak, or maybe even just a, a short introduction, but then a big book at the end that would be one particular volume. And in the, I just had to change because there was so much that I was discovering on those works that I realized it's silly not to you know, expand on the works themselves. And so <laughs> there would be no monography at the end, um, no independent monograph, and there would be no big introduction. There would be this sometimes very, very elaborate entries, some of the manuscripts of which are, you know, it was 20 pages long. So. Yeah, they're essay-like. Yeah, each each work has an essay, sort of early works, when you're a student, it's very short, but, uh, but you know, some of the entries, as I said, like for the window of a major important, you know, really important works, turning points in his, in his career, some of the entries are very, very long. Yeah, well, I want to get back to that, both about the structure of the book and about uh, Ellsworth's uncanny um, obsession with his past and his ability to gather from his archive things that you needed to have at hand. But I want to get back to the question of Cahiers d'Art itself. Yeah. Uh, people may not know that Cahiers d'Art was a Paris-based arts magazine and publishing enterprise funded by Zervos, Christian Zervos, in 1926. And it was a serious journal of art and ideas with articles written by, for example, Paul Elouard, Samuel Beckett, Jacques Lacan, and others, and with reproduction of works by artists such as Picasso, Matisse, Leger, Ernst, Brancusi, Calder, Duchamp. It was a big deal. It also published the famous 33-volume catalogue resume of the works of Picasso, compiled by Zervos, and published over 46 years from 1932 to 78. Ellsworth lived in Paris, obviously, from 48 to 53, so he lived in the era of Cahiers d'Art. Did he ever meet Zervos? I don't know if he met Davos, but he met his publications. He was given very early on one of the publications of, well, I think when he arrived in Paris, or just a year after, one of the early publications by Zervos on Greek Cycladic art. 
published by Morancé, I think, and you know he re he still has uh, you know, this volume is still in his library, and he also purchased I don't know when exactly, probably not until the sixties, the Zervos catalog resonate. It's it's in this in. It's in the library. The Picasso. Yeah. The Picasso, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the old idea of having the book published by Kayada uh, happened a little by chance. Uh, Stefan uh, Arnberg decided to resuscitate Kayada, which had basically stopped any activity uh, after the the end of the Picasso catalogers, and they were not doing anything. So he bought this company and decided to start again the journal. His idea was to do the first special issue. The first issue would be a special issue on on Elsewhere. So he went to see Elsewhere. And we had not decided who would be the, the actual publisher you know, of the catalog resume of, of Elsewhere. Our idea was more like, as been in many other uh, enterprises of the, of the same uh, kind, which is that the foundation of the artist is uh, actually the, the, the real publisher. And uh, there is a distributor which pretends to be a publisher, like Yale did for Rothko, which was completely done by the National Gallery and uh, Rothko Foundation, or Yale did for Barnett Newman, which was completely done by the, by the Barnett Newman Foundation and so forth. So we thought it was going to be that model. But, you know, Arnbergs had to say, well, why not uh, me? And then he said something which was so, <laughs> so extraordinary that I told Elsworth, you are not going to hear that very often. He said, as long as you want, you can have as many uh, supporting illustrations as you want. Every single work uh, um, on which there is an entry will be produced in color, full page. I mean, it was just like insane. And you never heard a publisher doing that. <laughs> Like, this is not what you hear. I can tell you, this is not common. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us what is a catalog resume, what function it will serve for scholars uh, in the future. Well, you know, catalog resume usually is just the tombstone, as they call, they call it, but it, the identity card of each work, you know. Uh, what titles did he got? Did he get? When it was first shown? What was when it was first commented? You know, kind of bibliography, exhibition history, provenance, and all that. That's what a catalog resume usually has. But I, I found I found myself often frustrated that it's not more raisonné. That it's uh, often just. I mean, the catalog resume of Zervosi is a typical example. It's just a, an accumulation of, of photographs with. A title at the end, uh, a list of titles and dates at the end of the book, and I, it's very unsatisfying. Uh, for you know, there's no real uh, <laughs> reasoning there, and so I always dreamt of a catalog as a need that would have real serious discussion of of the works, and in the case of the first volume. Uh, because uh, especially when uh, from the, from forty eight to fifty three, when uh, Alsace works in Paris, I mean he works in fifty four too, but he doesn't paint in fifty four. So that there's nothing, there's no work from fifty four in that first volume. But during this period, it's really when he invents himself, and really almost every new painting or relief, uh, there's no sculpture yet, is a completely new departure. He really invents so many things and so fast during this, this period, that almost every entry is a kind of little mini essay on a new problem, if not a new problem, a new solution. There's very, very few entries that are more, that more than one work. I think that the second volume will be start being quite different than that, because when it comes to New York, it starts working more in, in series. And so I think that in, in that particular first volume, there's maybe five entries that are on more than one work. I think that in the, in the second volume, it will be half and half. And I think in the third volume, there will be, proportion will be reversed. It will be very few entries on just one work. I'm not going to write a new essay on, on each possible 
you know, curve of each totem that he made because I'm not I'm not Superman. But uh, because the problem is doesn't change so much from one totem to the next, let's say. Uh, but in France during those years, that's where which he really invents himself and and his and the speed at which he does it. I mean, it's constantly in the letters he writes to his friends. I don't have the time to finish on my ideas. I don't have you know. I'm, he's constantly late on his own you know billions, which is also why this period was he always characterized this period as the most important period of his production as the most happy period of his life even though he was a loner um, and didn't have a huge you know circle of friends in paris and so it's also why he knows so much about this period because i think right from the start he, he was quite conscious that what he was doing was new and I think that particularly when John Copeland started working on, on him and the, the Copeland's article on Kelly's Frenchers appeared in Art Forum in the summer of 69 and was, uh, you know, very, very striking to everyone because pe- people didn't know then about this work. I think that around that time, let's say in 68, 69, 68 is when he gives to, the, to MoMA a penny for a large war also. So there was, he, he started paying a lot more attention to his early work and started uh, archiving it in a more uh, logistic manner and, and so forth. I, he, and looking a lot at his early drawings and sketchbooks and, you know, mining his own work and reminiscing. So he basically, he has been thinking about his early work with more focus since 68, 69, when Copeland started to work on him. So we talked a little bit earlier about his obsessive preoccupation with his early work. It, it is it is staggering that he kept so much of it and took care of it so well over those difficult years, those first years, uh, and, and that it would be available to you. I think that you said something that there were just two paintings that you've lost track of. I mean, otherwise, all that production is is known and its current location is, is known. And That's one of the great things about, about, you know, is there will not be production of fakes. <laughs> at, at least in terms of um, of paintings, reliefs, and sculpture, that will not happen. It can't. <laughs> it's just impossible. <laughs> I remember once being with you in the studio, and uh, you're teasing uh, Ellsworth over a postcard that you had written as maybe a teenager. Uh, you had something to say on the postcard about a painting of his you'd seen, and you didn't like some aspect of it or something. And you were teasing him that he didn't reply. He hadn't replied to you and uh, your postcard, and he rushed back to his archive and pulled the postcard out of the archive and brought it to you and said you didn't put on a return address <laughs> the thing i have to correct the story actually because i said that story uh, actually quite a, uh, i mentioned it several times and just two days before he died i actually find by pure chance i was trying to find the date of trips i made in new york with, with, to, to try to, to find out what what the first time i saw it was another work about it was called hearts beats dust by by jean dupuis i wanted to find out exactly because i knew i saw it in new york and i knew i saw it in the gallery but i couldn't find exactly which trip so i was looking at a whole bunch of letters that i wrote to people and in, for whatever reason in a bon- bunch of letters to to and f- to uh, from Mario shapiro i found this postcard from elsewhere and in fact he had answered me so it was just two days before he died and i almost called him i'm glad i didn't because i thought maybe i would i would, I would like feel oh my god i killed him <laughs> i was totally flabbergasted I was like this is really really weird so he had answered me and um I, I, what I'd written to him was, was a letter, not a postcard, but it was pure drivel. I'm glad I mean, he, he found it because he never threw anything away. But um, and he gave me a copy, which immediately I lost. But, you know. 
But it, but it, 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 tell us more about your thoughts of of the sort of psychology of the person to keep such things because every every note he took, every every sketch he made, every every collage he made uh, uh, at a time in which he was uh, fairly impoverished and and busily working away, he found some way to to keep care of things. Yeah, it took him a while to get back his, his um, the works. I don't know exactly what if he took with him his sketchbooks, but certainly the paintings and sculpture. He had to have a deal, and he paid, you know, and he took him a lot to pay with uh, the Cunard, um, you know, a transatlantic, uh, you know, a liner um, to get. It took him, you know, took him five years, even though he was, you know, he was he was indeed very poor. Um, I think it relates to another topic, which is this capacity that he has, as you mentioned at the, in the beginning, to, to, I took just an example of the last exhibition, that, uh, at, uh, which is last year, actually, at uh, uh, Mathieu Marc's gallery, where, which were, some of the works were based on collage that he made in the, in the 50s and 60s. And unlike any other artist that I know of, when he decides to realize in painting a final collage, final study for work that he had done before, it doesn't make any difference that it, you know, he, he could have done it in 1958 as a painting, but he didn't, okay, because he always ran out of time with regard to his ideas. So he goes back to it 50 years later. Says, oh, I didn't do that. I could do it. It's interesting. No. It has to be exact. He reproduces exactly the collage at, to the scale of the painting. Uh, he doesn't allow himself to edit whatsoever. And it's the same idea when he does this thing, which is called a transfer, when he, he records a surface that he sees in the world, something that has to be flat, and he just records it as a, as a Chinese uh, archaeologist would, uh, would uh, move frottage on Chinese, old Chinese tombs or whatever. It's just a matter of recording without interpretation, without uh, editorial decisions. And when he finds the uh, ice cream cone flattened in the street and he likes the shape that it makes, um, the first thing he does is paste it in some piece of paper to keep it. And then eventually a few days or a week, some months later, or you know, even years later, he said, oh, I should realize it was perfect. I like it at first and I was, I was right to like it. It's exactly what I want to do. He would, have to, he would do it exactly. He would recopy, he would just trace the exact proportion and just expand it on a shaped canvas. That's all he would do. Nothing would be uh, added to the shape that struck him uh, at first. And the idea that a collage by him or something that he finds in the world and records as such, it's the same. There is no difference for him. Uh, it's a, there is no personal, subjective, added value of the fact that one comes from a doodle that he made and the other one something found in the street. The subjective act is just the choice. This is a, something that befell on me. I don't know why I like it, but I like it. And I'm going to do it. That's, that I find amazing because I don't, I don't know if there's any other artist who would be able to look at, the, at one, one's own work from 10, 20, 30, 50 years before without wanting to, if you want to realize something in, in, from, a, from a drawing to a painting, without wanting to change it. That's really unique. I don't know any other artist like that. So his past was, has always been a kind of cornucopia from which he could uh, select things at any time. He never abandoned anything. Uh, there are, he was very critical of his own work, and sometimes there are works that he didn't like. In general, it was works that the works that he kind of tended to discard were works that were too much uh, historically bound. Like he was, he has a, there's all kind of all series of work that he made in the 60s, late 
abilities that had to do with some kind of optical illusion, of, you know, false perspectival views, and he never liked them. Or like, you know, when based on the kind of isometrical cube, he never liked those things. I mean, he never he liked them when he made them, but he never liked them where, uh, during the time I was friend, friends with him for the last year. Um, did he destroy work? So did he constantly edit his earth? He destroyed work, but far less than one would think. Uh, in fact, very, and certainly he had a very hard time destroying paintings. Uh, he didn't like to destroy things, even if he didn't like the work. He destroyed some drawings, yes, but but far less than what would would think. He, he he didn't like to show. Like when I did the show, I did at a drawing center, you know, the, of the tablet. Uh, so one day I was at Elsworth's ha- uh, studio, and he said, "Oh, he opened a big drawer and said, Valentin." Did I show you those? And of course, he knew very well. He never showed me those. But those were two, about 200 boards on, on cardboard with all, uh, all kinds of little drawings, but also clips, uh, uh, images cut out from from uh, from magazines and all that. They were glued on these 200 cardboards, and you know they were basically things that he had to. F- they were in a big box when he was moving from New York to Spencerton, and he decided, okay, well, they were not good enough to be in sketchbooks, but they were not bad enough to be thrown away, so I had to find something. So he just made this, this presentation for him to keep them. And he had never shown it to anyone, and he had never looked at them, really, uh, in all that time. And I said, well, we have to show them. And he was very ambivalent about the idea of showing them, because they were, you know, they were rough ideas. There were some doodles that he made without, you know, without paying any attention to it. He... He, he took it. took him a while. We, we showed it, and he, until the end, he had a very ambivalent relationship to the to the show. You know, oh, it shows my weakness and all. But say, you know, yeah. that's his idea. I remember one month, Picasso never made a bad drawing. Said, well, well, elsewhere, I will. <laughs> I can. I'm. Sure we have the servers here. I'll show you quite a few bad ones if you want to. <laughs> so, but he, can, you know, he, he could not bring himself to swear away this all these things in this in this box of, of, of little clippings and little doodles. From, from, the, from uh, almost from the very beginning. I mean, the words you use, I think the, the phrase that you use, which is so clear in this, is that you say the habit of harnessing his own past without succumbing to the habit of editing it. I came to understand that Erswitz is not an abstract artist, at least to the way we understand abstraction, which has often to do with universal, speak about Mondrian, you know, like against a particular, go behind the appearances to the, you know, the, the core or whatever. He, he was always about the particular, the completely particular. This particular shape, this particular form, this particular color, this everything is completely unique and particular, which is why he can't edit. Because editing would mean, would, would mean that there is a kind of core behind the particularity, that there is some kind of central image that is behind the, the material you know, rendering. Of, <clears throat> for him, it's... That's square, and not that one. I, at the end of the catalogue raisonné, I make I, I allude to that thing which I think absolutely wonderful, which is one of the two last works he made in in Paris, where a pair of a white square bordered by a, a, a black frame and a black square bordered by a white frame. Now those works have been often compared to Malevich, but. In fact, in the reverse, for Malevich, there was the black square. But the black square could come in any way. He had several versions of the same painting, some done by a student. He had even a, a plate. It was on his tomb. I mean, the, the black square was a kind of universal thing for Malevich, like the zero degree of shape. It was like the, the beginning of everything and the end of everything. Before elsewhere, the square was not this kind of universal shape at all. In fact, those paintings were linked to a screen, a frosted grass uh, screen of a cafe, 
uh, with with a metal frame of a cafe terrace in Paris that you you would put in a, in a in a in a fall, and he he went back to measure the square, and he says something in one of the texts that he wrote or you know, interview with someone. He says, "I had to measure the proportion." Of the square, but it's not the proportion at all. Else, square has very clear proportion; is one to one. It's the size. This particular size is what, what he liked. This particular measurement of this particular square. It's not just a square; it's that square, and that's I think is typical of the way he thought. You you also say at one point about um, in his working pattern, you describe it as a system, and then almost immediately you backtrack and say. The, the idea of a system is inadequate when talking about his work, that it doesn't admit to Ellsworth's habit of working intuitively. Yeah, it's true. What, what do you mean by that, and, and how do you rethink the word system? He had no, uh, let's say, theoretical foundation, really. He had a practical you know, tools of being taught at, uh, as for, you know, the, the simply the manipulation of color and, and paint and, and at the school, but he had no, you know, today's young uh, kids who go to, to art school, they are spoon-fed a lot of theoretical uh, discourse. Not at all with Ellsworth. It's, it's completely intuitive, and sometimes he doesn't, quite know what he's doing until much later. He reflects upon it, but it's kind of after. So so I think it's all uh, that's what I call his, his non-compositional strategies. They just came kind of naturally, or, organically, without him really thinking too much about it. And with regard to color, often he's asked, what did you do? How do you explain why you use this color? He often said, I don't know. And he had this wonderful image of, you know, the I don't know what's, what's the word in English, the, the people who look for... for for springs or water, you know, and in in the south of France they have these little rods, you know, they, they hold it, and when the rod starts uh, trembling, they say, oh, there must be water underneath there. He has he, he made this often this gesture. Of, I don't know, it's like that, and he would we would do the same gesture with his hands, you know. I do that. <laughs> my brain does that, so my eyes do that. He always said, yeah, my eyes, my eyes tell me, yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. But I don't know why exactly. And he would agonize about a particular shade of one color for, for months. Uh, in the last show, there was one painting, um, three-panel painting with red, uh, uh, black, and, and, uh, and white. And for more than a year, that painting was unfinished in the, in, you know, it looked finished to me, but it was <laughs> declared unfinished in the studio every time I would come, let's say every month or a month and a half. And it, it was the, he was dissatisfied with the red, and he would change the red. And of course, since I would go only you know every month and a half or something, I frankly could not see much difference. But for him, it was absolutely you know. And one day he said, "Okay, I found the red. That's it. I got it." But he, he was not. He had no particular uh, idea of why exactly, and he really disliked any kind of color theory. And I, I had a hard time explaining to him that Albers didn't have a theory. He did. He disliked. He did dislike Albert's theory of color. I said, but Albert's is not a, you know, it's a practical, it's practical recipes. It's not, there's no real theory. But it was like, that was it. Now you cite some factors uh, to be taken into consideration when considering his non-compositional strategy, as you call it. And some of them, of these factors you say, are his early interest in medieval and particularly Romanesque sculpture or architecture, the impact of Hiroshima and the atom bomb and the artist's sense of self and humanity, big questions, the overwhelming presence and example, of course, of Picasso as a young artist for Ellsworth working in Paris after the war. What about these factors? And, and uh, you can tell, just tell us more about them. Well, I, I don't, you know, I mean, the, the, he, he, they, when around his first statement, the famous letter to Cage, where he spoke about the anonymity of the medieval period, and, the, you know, that, that was a kind of romantic view of the Middle Age and the pre-modern 
concept pre-Renaissance, even concept of the artist that he had. So he was interested in that, but I would say as a kind of dream, you know, a kind of dreamland. You you raised the name of John Cage, and you do talk about the role of chance in his non-compositional strategy, and some of that comes from or is introduced to him by Ralph Coburn, as I recall. Could you tell us more about the role of chance in his work? Yeah, so, the, yeah, I, I try to, to correct a mistake that is often done, that Cage was very important for Kelly with regard to this issue of chance. Cage met, they met for, for one afternoon in June uh, 1949, and another afternoon, uh, I think two weeks later, and that was it. And then they corresponded one, uh, Kelly wrote to him a year and a half later. So at that time, Cage was not interested in chance, not yet. So Cage was very, very important for Kelly in the sense that, you know, Kelly was very young, very shy, and Cage told him, oh, what you do is very good, because he brought, he brought him to, to his hotel room. They were in the same, they met because they were in the same hotel. And Coburn was Kelly's friend just say, oh, it's Cage here, and, and uh, introduced, you know, the introductions were made and whatever. But so Chance, Coburn did, had, 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 Coburn and also Jungerman a bit later, uh, had um, introduced Kelly to the game of the cadaveric ski, which Kelly found interesting, but was not sure it, would, it could yield too, too much and uh, didn't actually continue on that. The person that was important for him in, with regard to, to his interest in chance was actually Arp, Jean Arp, which he, he, started, he visited three times in 1950 and 1951. And Arp showed them, he, he went with Coburn in one visit with Jungerman, Arp showed them a little, um, you know, collage he had made of things cut out, cut out and or torn out, and uh, that's what Arp said. I, I, I never believe completely that, but you know, uh, this, uh, arranged according to chance by throwing the piece of, of paper on on the ground and then glue glue them on a piece of paper as they had fallen. So he was that was that that had been important for for Kelly as a kind of, and also the fact that uh, that what what Arp had been doing is using cutting up his own work. You know, as a kind of almost uh, iconoclastic relationship to to his previous work, so to, in order to make those collage uh, according to um, chance, and uh, that was important for Kelly. It was a big uh, oh, that's one way to use it, and and it, and it began to be more interested in in the in the whole. And and we see Ellsworth use that in 1951 in Cité, for example, right? Yeah, exactly. So we mentioned Coburn, and you mentioned Jack Youngerman. Yeah. Those are pretty much Ellsworth's friends at the time. He was pretty much otherwise alone, wasn't he? And then, and, Jack Youngerman and, and his wife, Delphine Serig, the, actor, the actress Delphine Serig. Uh, and, you know, Ellsworth was, yeah, he was lonely. I mean, even though he had a, he had a show in Paris, in, in, a, in a gallery that he himself and he and Jack Youngerman and a third friend, Kuskas, uh, this told, persuaded um, the, this bookseller, Arnaud, to uh, open a kind of gallery in the basement. And so they spent like two, two and a half or three months uh, basically painting, cleaning, you know, whatever the basement. And then they each, each of them had a show there. And it was his first one-man show, which is quite amazing, uh, including, you know, major works. And, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't sell anything. The only work that he sold in Paris was actually before that show and was through the friendship. Uh, it was to Henri Sering, the, 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 the father of Delphine Sering. And Henri Sering was uh, the head of Oriental Antiquity in the Louvre at the time. He was a, big, he was a major scholar. And he was also, um, you know, the head of the French Institute of Archaeology in Lebanon. And so anyways, he was, so that's the only work that also sold in uh, five years and a half of living in Paris, which is extraordinary. But the advantage to him, and we talked about this a bit earlier, the advantage of him being away from New York and away from 
the, the, the pressure of New York, the towering figures of New York, the emergence of a Picasso-like figure, Pollock, in New York, ultimately was to his advantage. Yeah, but he didn't know it at the time. When he came back to New York, he felt that he had missed the boat a bit and felt, and people thought he was too European in a way. And if, you know, he, he was a very strange situation because in, in Paris, he was always thought as too American, possibly because he didn't speak French very well or almost not. At, uh, and when he returned to America, he was, he was fed as, his work was understood as too European. So he was always, he was a bit, he was a bit of a, a little off. He was a little, you know, uh, a loner, it's true, and never felt that he belonged to any group or anything. Even late in life, I mean, the the, the artists that he uh, with whom he associated uh, were well, often you would not imagine being part of the same group. Let's say that he was always very very fond of Roy Lichtenstein. They even showed together, but you know you would not necessarily put them in the same you know in the same branch of the tree. Let's say. So in those last months, let's say in in Paris. Uh, he was in the hospital for some number of weeks. He wasn't feeling well. He was at the American Hospital in Neuilly. And he came across, you say, in, in, the, in the catalog, you say he comes across this article on the work of Ad Reinhardt. And that was important to him. Yeah, well, he, he saw the cover of Art News. I think it was out in a review of the show of Reinhardt, a long review. And he said, oh, my God, you know, he, remember, he was very poor. He had not sold anything. He was very depressed at the time because he had been kicked out of his studio by the, the owner who could rent it to an artist who was more fortunate. So he was very depressed. And and uh, I was beginning to write to friends that said, I have to go back. I, mean, I can't continue anymore. You know? And he felt that, you know, if there's a, if those works by, by Reinhardt, they were, they were like probably, I, I don't remember the cover, but I think it was a blue, a blue. Um, no, it was not a black work. It was one of those blue, um, you know, monochrome, but not monochrome because there's no monochrome in Reinhardt, but blue on blue. And uh, he felt, you know, well, if there's like a, color uh, in the front, in the cover of a journal and an article, and they, then maybe I can survive in America. Maybe, I, you know, my, my kind of work can sell. So that's he came back. So even though we talked earlier about how long you've been thinking about and looking at and writing about Ellsworth's work over the course of your academic career, scholarly career, um, uh, and then in the intensity of this project with years, a decade or so on, on this on this first volume of the, of the Catalog Resonate, how much did you learn in the process? I mean, is it how you mentioned earlier about something about how you learned about his working process at the beginning, but is is a fundamental change in your thinking about him as a result of this long term commitment to the project? Um, it's not to say, for the most part, my interpretation or my vision of things didn't change, but it got deeper. I I, I was a bit afraid to tell you the truth about this first volume. Uh, well. One for one reason, it's it's always a difficult volume because it's a volume where you establish the the, the grid, basically the parameter, how to work, how to do. You know, it's a, you have to you have to put the structure in place. So it's a bit scary for that. But that was that was not the main problem for me. I was afraid of being getting bored because I thought I knew those works very well. I'd written all, about almost all of them before. You know, and on the contrary, what happened is that I I would get more and more impressed by the process and all the visual thinking that uh, that was behind every one of them, even much more than I'd previously thought, because, you know, you spent more time um, with all of them, you know, and, and, you know, discovered things that I didn't know before or, or a lot of things that I didn't know before. So my interpretation or my view of Elthus has not changed, except that I think that I would not have said before I would not, it wouldn't have been in my DNA to say that I didn't think that Elsworth was an abstract artist, at least on the way 
I mean, I, I use an abstract artist, of course, but he, he doesn't have any concept of the universal. And so, which is the way we think about abstraction, which is like, you know, you have all the concrete parts and then you have the abstract concept that, that is not, I don't think I would have been able to formulate it that way. I think that this, the, <clears throat> the notion that everything is utterly particular and not can't really be produced in any other way. Uh, that is something that, that I understood intuitively, but could not have formulated that way. That's true. Ivela, thank you so much for all the time that you've given us. I have got, I've got one last question. Okay. It was something that we sort of, I teased you with before we got on the air. But one of the fundamental and profound contributions that a catalog resonate makes is to the authority that it has. And that authority is usually referred to in shorthand by the name of the author and the number given with the work of art thereafter. So from here on out, Ellsworth forever is going to be, his pictures will be referred to by Bois numbers. <laughs> how, do you, how do you live with that? I don't know. I, until a friend of mine mentioned that to me yesterday, I had never thought about it. It's a bit, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to think about it. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. It's been great talking with you. All right. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. <laughs>